Welcome to the Monterey Podcast. For more information, check out our website at montereychurch.com. Well, we do celebrate and honor a God who is so good to us, a God who laid down his life for us, who showed us what real power and influence looks like, and a God who invites us to take up our crosses daily and to follow as well. I want to begin this morning the same way that I have begun the last two Sundays. Uh, There is power in simply hearing and reading the Word of God. And so let me invite you to open your hearts and minds as I read a couple of texts this morning, familiar texts, stories from the ministry of Jesus. From John chapter 13, it was just before the Passover festival. Jesus knew the hour had come for him to leave this world and go to the Father. Having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end, or he showed them the full extent of his love. The evening meal was in progress, and the devil had already prompted Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, to betray Jesus. Jesus knew that the Father had put all things under his power, and that he had come from God and was returning to God, so he got up from the meal, he took off his outer clothing, and he wrapped a towel around his waist. After that, he poured water into a basin and began to wash his disciples' feet, drying them with the towel that was wrapped around him. He came to Simon Peter, who said to him, Lord, are you going to wash my feet? Jesus replied, you do not realize now what I'm doing, but later you will understand. No, said Peter, typical of Peter, you shall never wash my feet. Jesus answered, Unless I wash you, you have no part with me. And then Lord Simon Peter replied, Not just my feet, but my hands and my head as well. Jesus answered, Those who've had a bath need only to wash their feet. Their whole body is clean. And you are clean, though not every one of you. For he knew who was going to betray him, and that was why he said not everyone was clean. When he had finished washing their feet, he put on his clothes and returned to his place. Do you understand what I've done for you? He asked. You call me teacher and Lord, and rightly so, for that is what I am. Now that I, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also should wash one another's feet. I have set you an example that you should do as I have done for you. Very truly I tell you, no servant is greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. Now that you know these things, you will be blessed if you do them. From Mark chapter 10. And then James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came to him. Teacher, they said, we want you to do for us whatever we ask. What do you want me to do for you, he asked. They replied, let one of us sit at your right and the other at your left in your glory. You don't know what you're asking, Jesus said. Can you drink the cup I drink? Be baptized with the baptism I'm baptized with. We can, they answered. Jesus said to them, you will drink the cup I drink and be baptized with the baptism I'm baptized with. But to sit at my right or left is not for me to grant. These places belong to those for whom they have been prepared. And when the 10, the other 10 disciples heard about this, they became indignant with James and John. Jesus called all of them together and said, you know that those who are recognized or regarded as rulers of the Gentiles, lord it over them, and their high officials exercise authority over them. Not so with you. Instead, whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant, and whoever wants to be first must be slave of all. 
For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. And then a couple of the Beatitudes. Blessed are the meek, or the gentle, for they will inherit the earth. And blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called the children of God. He was one of three elders in a church of about 300 members. As an elder, he certainly had influence in that church. But those who knew him well would have said he probably had more influence than the other two elders because he often pressed to make sure that his preferences were honored. Some would have even said that it seemed like he always had an agenda. For example, when his son made the decision to join a team and go to the mission field, he pressed hard for the church to become his son's sponsoring church. When his son created all sorts of chaos and conflict among the rest of the mission team members to the point that the rest of the team severed relationship with him, and so he returned to the States, his dad, the elder, pressed hard with the other two elders for his son to be hired as an associate minister. When one conflict after another arose between the son and the preaching minister, most of it prompted by his son, when the preaching minister reached a point of saying, I can't deal with it any longer, and he chose to leave, the father, the elder, pressed the other two elders hard for his son to become the preaching minister. And as you can imagine, as the preaching minister, one conflict after another took place to the point where half of the church ultimately left because of the conflicts. And the other two elders finally said, we've had enough. And against the objections of this dad, they fired the preacher, which just really perturbed this elder. And among other things, he chose to write himself on the church's checking account, he chose to write himself a check for $40,000 saying, I've never been reimbursed throughout the years for all of the things I've done for this church. Power out of control. As White House counsel to President Richard Nixon from 1970 to 1973, a young John Dean was one of the primary players in the Watergate scandal, which many of us remember well. A scandal which ultimately led Nixon to resign as president, knowing that Congress would likely impeach and remove him from office. What began as a bungled break-in at the Democratic National Headquarters led to all sorts of cover-up and secret money payoffs. Dean and others and the president's closest circle of advisors were reportedly aware of the break-in plans and later, along with the president, tried to cover it all up. Dean ultimately became a key witness to the Senate Watergate Committee, which granted him immunity, but even before that had taken place, he had already pled guilty to the charges of obstruction of justice, and so he spent some time in prison. To his credit, after the scandal subsided, Dean changed the course of his life. But as all of that was unfolding, as he began to reflect upon it, while everything was still fresh on his mind, he wrote a, a remarkable memoir about the operations 
of the Nixon White House that he called Blind Ambition, which offers an insider's view of the deceptions that brought down an administration and to a large extent changed the American people's view of politics and power. Also contains Dean's own reflections on the personal demons that drove him to participate in this sordid affair, a memoir about himself and others who found themselves in key leadership roles politically as they climbed that ladder, no matter who might be harmed in the process, power or ambition out of control, what Dean described as blind ambition. They came to me for marriage counseling about seven or eight years into their marriage. Both husband and wife worked full-time. They had three preschool-age children who were in daycare while their parents were at work. As I typically do in the first session, when a couple comes to me for marriage counseling, it's time to get acquainted, and then ultimately for me to ask the question, so what brought you here? What's going on in your marriage that caused you to come to marriage counseling? She responded by saying, let me describe for you a typical day in our home. She said, I get up before he does, and then I get the kids up. I get them dressed. I cook breakfast for the entire family, and then I have to call him three or four or five times before he gets up. We have breakfast together. I take the children to daycare. I go to work. At the close of the day, I pick up the children. I take them home. I take care of them. I begin cooking dinner for the family while he sits in front of TV, of the TV. After dinner, I clean up. I bathe the kids. I get them ready for bed while he's back in front of the TV. And after I've gotten all of that done, got the kids to bed, he's ready for bed. It may be 9 o'clock, 10 o'clock, 11 o'clock, but he's ready for bed, and he expects me to be a fantastic sex partner. I looked at him, and I asked, is that an accurate picture? And he says, yeah, that's pretty accurate. What's wrong with that? <laughs> Relationship roles, so out of balance, complete misunderstanding of what love and support and encouragement and even submission should look like. In fact, at one point during those sessions, he said, and I quote him almost verbatim, the Bible says the wife is supposed to submit to the husband, and so when I tell her to submit, I expect her to do what I want. First week of this series, I referenced a book by Richard Foster titled Money, Sex, and Power, in which Foster says three of the greatest temptations that we as Americans face are the temptations of money and sex and power. That may be true for most cultures, but Foster was very direct as he wrote for the benefit of those of us who live in this country, the different ways that culture may shape us. And so the question we have posed throughout this series is, so what are you shaped by? What shapes your values, your worldview, your language, your behavior? Are we shaped more by our culture's perspectives on money and possessions than we are by the words of Jesus? A question we asked a couple of weeks ago as we talked about the consumeristic culture in which we live that often tells us you'd be a whole lot happier if you had more money, more possessions, more stuff. 
Are we shaped more by our culture's perspectives when it comes to the use of our time? A culture where, we were al- where we're always busy, always in a hurry, many times with very little space, with very little margin for the things that are really, really important. The importance of rest, the importance of Sabbath, the importance of our family, the importance of investing in the lives of others. Are we more shaped by our culture's perspectives on how we use our time than we are by the words of Scripture or the words of Jesus? And today I would invite you to ponder with me the allure of power and influence. Now, hear me carefully. Reality is all of us have our fair share of power and influence. We're in relationships with so many different folks in our lives, and so we all have a certain level of power and influence. But the question is whether we use our power and influence appropriately or inappropriately, whether we use power and influence only to our advantage or whether we use our power and influence to bless and to serve others. And so from the beginning today, don't hear the word power in negative ways because we all have our share of power and influence. The question is how we use that power. Uh, Paul Hersey, a key speaker, writer on leadership, taught at the uh, University of Chicago and Ohio University for a number of years, and Ken Blanchard at a leadership institute. His career was spent speaking on, writing about leadership. Those two guys together, Hersey and Blanchard, developed a model of leadership that they called a situational leadership model, which suggests that successful leaders adapt their styles of leadership to a certain extent on the basis of the maturity level of the groups they are leading. For example, as a parent, the way you parent a two-year-old child will hopefully look different from the way you parent a teenager. Now, might not all the time. Maybe the teenager is acting like a two-year-old. But their point being, we parent based on the maturity level of our children. And so the way you lead any group may look a bit different based upon the maturity of the group that you're leading. That's one side of their model of leadership. But the other side, and the one I want to focus on, The other side of the model is that all of us have certain levels of power and influence based on a whole variety of things. For example, you may have power or influence because of the position you are in. You are the owner or the president of the organization. You're the CEO of the company. You're an elder. You're a parent. You're the primary leader of the team. You have power or influence because of your position. You may have power or influence because of the information you possess. Uh, Throughout my years in ministry, I've had the wonderful privilege of being blessed with, with some incredible church secretaries. I've often joked that I think it is a whole lot easier to replace a preacher than it is to replace a good church secretary because of the information especially if they've served in that role for a good bit of time. They know families. They know church history. They know all sorts of detail. They have a whole lot of power because of the information they possess. And hopefully they use that power in good ways. They could use it 
in ungodly ways by withholding information. You may have power or influence because of your expertise. You are a mechanic. You're a computer expert. You're a doctor. You have a certain level of power and influence simply because of your expertise. But no matter what kind of power or influence you possess, what really matters, according to Hersey and Blanchard, is do you genuinely care about the folks that you are leading? What really matters is your character. Are you authentic? You may have positional power. You're the president. You're the CEO. But how do you use that power? Is it a matter of treating others in condescending ways, of using others for your benefit, trampling on others, rather than using your influence and your power in ways that will bless and encourage all? Again, please don't hear the word power in just negative ways, but at the same time, I want you to hear me clearly. We live in a culture where the pursuit of power is often the name of the game. And we're often shaped by that perspective as well. And if you think about it for a moment, if you think about it for a moment, that's been the name of the game since the original temptation. The temptation that Adam and Eve caved into was the temptation to be the gods of their own lives rather than submitting to the God who had created them. That temptation has raised its ugly head throughout the course of human history. Why, even to the point of saying, you know, you can really change the course of human history. You can be more effective if you just gain more and more and more power in its ugliest form, no matter how many folks you trample or even destroy in the process. And so blind ambition in the family, in our jobs, in politics, and even in the church, to the point that we turn beautiful, beautiful words like submit and serve into words with all sorts of negative connotations. Well, that's just something we don't do. I'm not going to serve. I'm not going to be willing to submit to others. Why, I want to be able to climb the ladder. That's at the heart of the story in Mark chapter 10 where James and John make that request to Jesus. We want to sit, one at your right and one at your left in your glory. Now, obviously, throughout the ministry of Jesus, they have misunderstandings of what his kingdom is all about. But no matter what their understandings were at some level, they wanted to be in a position of authority, a position of power, one at your right, one at your left. And Jesus says, that's not what my kingdom looks like. If you want to, if you want to talk about power and uh, position from that perspective, then all you have to do, Jesus says, is to look at the kingdoms of the world. He talks about Gentile leaders and those in positions of authority. And I would suppose if he were in our culture today, he would likewise say, all you have to, look, all you have to do is look at the way that we often exercise power in our world. Folks are always clamoring for more power where those in powerful positions often take advantage of others, where folks are manipulating and deceiving others. In contrast, Jesus says, in my kingdom, the greatest is the one who's willing to serve. And he adds to that, for even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve. That's how you use power 
and influence and position appropriately. You serve others. And as you well know, those are not just words that Jesus speaks. We see him living that out. One of the classic examples is the text I read from John 13, where Jesus washes the feet of his disciples, including the disciple who's getting ready to betray him. While no one else has gotten up from that table to wash dirty feet, dirty, stinking feet from walking dusty roads, Jesus washed the feet of the disciples. And after he did, he asked, do you understand what I've done? You call me teacher and Lord, and rightly so. That's who I am. But here's what it looks like for me to be teacher and Lord. Here's what it looks like for me to honor what God imagines and what God wants. You wash one another's feet. You serve one another. And so in that great Christ song in Philippians chapter Paul uh, chapter 2, Paul would challenge us to, say, to have the same attitude as Christ Jesus did. Christ, who being in very nature God, grab hold of that. He's deity, a full-fledged member of the divine family, equality with God. He's the Son of God, and yet he did not use his position to his own advantage. Rather, he humbled himself became one of us, served us, even to the point of death on the cross. And in the process, he demonstrated what it really looks like to make a difference in the world, to change the world. Let me invite the team to come ahead and join me on the stage again. Jesus, who shows us what it's like to use power and influence in godly ways. Contrast that to what we often say as we look at life. And unfortunately, what we often teach each other, what we teach our children, why what you need to do is climb that ladder. You need to gain more and more and more power. And so we find ourselves climbing the ladders that are in our lives. Sometimes, especially to my right, sometimes in dangerous ways. But we're climbing more and more because we want more and more power. Climbing sometimes with no clue where we're going. Sometimes in dangerous ways, blind to our ambitions. And in the process, all we're doing is looking to our own interest, our pursuit of power. And ultimately, no matter how tall the ladder is, the ladder really doesn't lead anywhere if our motives are not motives that are there to bless others. No matter how tall the ladder is, ultimately the ladder doesn't lead anywhere. In fact, many times we find ourselves falling from that ladder. Now, I'm not asking these guys to fall. You can go ahead and make your way down if you'd like. Be careful. Liability insurance may not be paid up. (laughs) And so Paul says, right before that great Christ song, Paul says, and you know the language well, but hear it this morning as we think about how culture shapes us. Paul says, do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value others above yourselves, not looking to your own interest, but to the interest of others. Now, hear me clearly. 
My goal today is not to discourage you from pursuing your dreams. My goal is not to discourage you advancing in your career. My goal is not to discourage you from even pursuing positions of leadership. My goal is to challenge you to not abuse whatever positions you find yourselves in, to not abuse your power or your influence, to not allow our culture to shape how you use that power or influence as you interact with others. In fact, my goal today is basically to invite us to pause and to think about the allure of power in our lives, to honestly evaluate our motives. And as we honestly evaluate, that may lead us to make some pretty hard decisions. In fact, at times may lead us to make some decisions that the world just doesn't understand. Debbie and I lived in northeastern Louisiana for seven years before we moved to Lubbock. There was a regional state farm office in that community. One of the brothers in the church had a rather significant job with State Farm. The time came when he was offered a sizable promotion and a sizable raise to go with it, but it would necessitate him moving himself and his family out of state, hundreds of miles away. They were heavily involved in the church, heavily involved in the community, had extended family members living in that community, and so ultimately he turned down the opportunity might not be the right decision for everyone, but it was the right decision for him. Even to the point that his supervisor told him, if you turn this opportunity down, you will likely never have this kind of opportunity again. But he made the right decision for himself and his family. Words of Jesus and the Beatitudes should still ring in our ears. Those who are truly blessed are those who are poor in spirit, those who demonstrate humility, unselfishness. Those who are truly blessed are those who are meek, those who are gentle, not those who domineer over or dominate others. Those who are truly blessed are those who pursue peace, who pursue relationships with others marked by humility and respect. In fact, again, if I can be this bold, that's how we make a difference in our world. Not by how much political power we possess, not by how many ladders we climb. We change the world for good by imitating the very life of Jesus. I've closed the last couple of weeks by giving you a couple of assignments. Today, I'm just going to give you one similar to one of the assignments I gave you last Sunday, one of the encouragements. Last week, I mentioned the examine, which is just one a spiritual practice that invites us to take a few minutes at the end of each day and to reflect upon our day. Reflect on what God did during the day, giving God thanks for what happened during the day, and then being honest enough to reflect upon what we did. Acknowledging areas where we didn't honor God appropriately and then asking God to bless us as we look forward to the next day. Let me encourage you today at the close of this day to take a few minutes to reflect upon the relationships in your life and especially to reflect upon the power and the influence you have in those relationships and then to be honest enough to acknowledge to yourself and to God areas where you may need to change and it might even necessitate you going to the people in your life saying, I need to change. I'm sorry for the ways 
I've not honored you. And so Paul's words again, do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value others above yourselves. Not looking purely to your interest, but to the interest of others. And if we can bless or serve you, pray for you in any way, we would invite you. Let's stand together as we sing.